story we read this morning on the most difficult night of your life would show us your goodness and cause us to trust you and love you, and if we haven't, to put you in charge of our lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I was probably 13, I don't remember because when you're in a traumatic event you don't always remember, but I was probably 13 and at a youth camp in, well, actually in the United States, this is going to be a bit of a tongue twister, I was in New Mexico with a bunch of Mexican kids at youth camp. Have any of you ever been to Crown Point, New Mexico? You haven't missed much, it's, uh, it's hard to get there. Uh, our particular youth group, we seem to have a rule that a we would take three or four buses, and it was mandatory that two of the buses break down on the way to youth camp, and that you got to see a whole other side of the men who had been entrusted to drive the bus to youth camp. Am I the only one that had these youth camp experiences? Brother Bill has a whole other gear of emotion, intensity, and anger when things aren't going quite right. But we made it, and we were keyed up, and a whole bunch of kids, this is when I was growing up in Mexico, that's why... I was with a bunch of kids from Mexico, and for some reason we chose to go near Crown Point, New Mexico, in the United States. I don't know if this is making sense. I know sometimes Mexico versus New Mexico is confusing to people, because when we were missionaries, uh, at the end of a conference, I said, I was standing by my table greeting people in this church I was visiting, and the lady said, where are, you a Mexic- uh, where are you a missionary again? Which, of course, told me I'd made a great impression on her because I'd just given a 20-minute presentation. She couldn't remember the country where we served. And I said, I'm in Mexico. She said, that's great. I have an aunt in Albuquerque. <laughs> okay, so you know why that's funny. Good. I nearly said I have an aunt in Garden City, Kansas, but I'm not sure what that has to do with anything we're talking about. Anyway, the kids from northern Mexico were across the border in Crown Point, New Mexico, kids from all over the country of Mexico, and we were, went on a hike, and one of the girls, an older girl, was going up a cliff and fell back toward me. I tried to help her. She was mortified. She was embarrassed. Being a teenager is just flat out embarrassing. Being a human being is embarrassing, really. Imagine standing where I do on Sunday mornings. Imagine being me trying to do this, okay? Um, Being a human being is tough. It's especially tough when you're a teenager because you have this impression that everybody's eyes are on you. She fell in front of about five dozen kids she didn't know. She was mortified. She went and cried to a kid in her youth group, and somehow that turned into me tripping her or assaulting her or doing something terrible to her And, of course, justice demands retribution. So I was minding my own 13-year-old business going to everybody's favorite thing at camp, which is to eat. And suddenly the sky darkened above me. And it was him. It was her very, to my 13-year-old eyes, her very giant friend who had just a few words, the kind of words that usually precede a beating. I don't know if you've ever had the experience. Sometimes people announce to you what they're going to do to you before they <laughs> set about it. I didn't really understand. I did nothing to this girl besides stick a hand out and try to help her. I didn't really understand why he was so upset. I was really clear on what he was saying he was going to physically do to me in that moment to avenge her honor. And my, to my enormous relief... 
I felt a large hand on my skinny little shoulders pulling me back, actually pushing me a little behind him. And one of my friends, who was much bigger than the other kid, stood between us and said, Lo que traigas con él, lo traes conmigo. Which roughly translated, if you speak Spanish, you understood that, you know how relieved I, how relieved I was. What that means, roughly, is whatever you want with him, you can deal with me. Thank you. <laughs> My friend Eliu Lozano stepped forward, and that's why I'm here to preach this sermon. <laughs> Open the Gospel of John with me in John chapter 18. This is one of the quietest stories in the Gospel of John. It has a detail in it that is fascinating, that is easily overlooked, that really tells you everything you need to know about Jesus. And maybe you're here and you found that Christians are hypocritical. Have you found that? We are. We continually come up short. If someone was purposely, deliberately, maliciously, in an evil way, hypocritical in your sight, I'm really sorry that happened. But I want to tell you about Jesus, not about his followers. I'm one of his followers. At our best, all we can do is point you to Jesus. That's it. That's the whole thing. And if you miss out on Jesus because one of his followers is bad, or false, or hypocritical, or sinful, or selfish... Whatever they are, if you miss out on him, you've missed out on the greatest person that ever was. And this quiet little story in the Gospel of John tells me his greatness and something that a lot of people, I think, in reading have not really pondered, and I want to show it to you. John 18, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, John says, and of course that takes you into whatever happened before John 18. If you're not really familiar with the Gospel of John, it's written by the man whose name it bears. It's written by the Apostle John. Jesus had 12 close disciples. He called them apostles, those who would be sent. Among the 12, there were three that were especially close to him. Among the three, there was one that was especially close, John, who's writing. John is an eyewitness to what he's telling you. When he says after, when Jesus had spoken these words, he's pulling you back into chapters 13 through 17. The story may be familiar to you, it's, it's actually vitally important. In John chapter 13, Jesus washes the disciples' feet at what would become the Lord's Supper. They gathered there to celebrate the Jewish Passover. Jesus observes the Passover with them and says, the Passover we're celebrating represents a new promise. I'm making a newer and better covenant with you, and I'm sealing it and making it with my body and my blood. This is for you. After that, the traitor goes out into the night. While the disciples unwittingly, cluelessly follow Jesus around in chapters 14 through 17, Judas is making his way through the darkness to secure religious officials and Roman soldiers. Judas has sold Jesus out, literally. That's why his name is synonymous with betrayal. That's why nobody names their son Judas. 
He has sat at the table with Jesus. He has shared Jesus' meals. He has shared Jesus' works and miracles. It seems that Jesus, Judas himself has even preached the gospel, maybe performed miracles himself along with the other apostles who were representing Jesus, who were honoring their name by being sent out by Jesus, but his heart was never with him. His heart was, his heart was always far, far from him, and in the most evil decision in human history, he sells Jesus out for the price of a slave. Those authorities are on their way, and only Jesus and Judas know it. In John chapter 17, the last thing he will do with the entire group, Jesus preaches, uh, Jesus prays for the disciples. It's a massively important chapter. It's one of the deepest chapters because you just get to overhear God the Son talk to God the Father. He's not praying as an example. He is having communion with the Father, talking to the Father mainly about the men around him, praying for them, and if you've never read it, he prayed for you as well. He prayed for those who would believe because of the apostles' witness. In other words, he prayed for however many years extend of the Christian faith until the Lord's returns. After all of these things, John says, Jesus went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now, again, this is the difficulty of the Bible. We're moving back in time and history and customs. You may not know where the brook Kidron is. You may not know what the garden means, but I bet you know at least a little bit of the story if you've been in church even a few times around Easter time. The brook Kidron is a little tiny brook that you can still visit. It's dry almost all year. I'm from Texas. I would call it a wash. In that part of the world, they would call it a wadi. It's a little dried up creek that hardly ever has water, and it's just outside the city gate. You can walk down the slope across the little dried brook. I haven't walked across it, but I've looked at it. Back up a very shallow slope, and before you walk too far, and it's not really any effort at all, it's literally in a very short walking distance, you're in what John here calls the garden. He doesn't name it, but I bet you know its name. Where did, they, where did Jesus take his disciples? The Garden of Gethsemane. It was almost certainly, based on what he's about to tell us, a walled private enclosure. Someone here is, has an olive farm. Someone here is raising olives, and there's a press nearby to get that precious basic of the ancient world out of the olives. They entered, Jesus says, John says. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. See, this is one of the details I want you to see. Before I ever saw Israel for myself, I always imagined that when Judas goes off into the night for the soldiers, the religious officials that will validate that this is an arrest against a blasphemous man with the authority of fearsome Roman soldiers to enforce it in case anybody wants to defend Jesus. I always thought it was something of a retreat, and it's not. I'm telling you how close it is so that you'll understand what Jesus is doing. He's not going to hide. He's actually going on the front step just outside the city. The place where he will be tried is only a short distance inside the city walls. 
Jesus didn't go to the Garden of Gethsemane to get away. He went there to give himself up. And there we're told he agonized in prayer. John doesn't tell us that story. That's not what he wants us to hear. It's all true, but you'll have to read other Gospels in this same Bible to get that side of the story. John only wants you to see what Jesus did next. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests, there's the two elements. There's the religious crowd and there's the civic authority. Roman soldiers and officers from the chief priests of the Jewish religion. Having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Scholars have done their best to try to estimate how many people were there. We can't be sure but enough and heavily armed. Roman soldiers, in fact, had a military standard and expectation. It's written down in history as something that should be real. Might have been a slight bit of an exaggeration of regarding their own prowess, but based on the way they went through the world almost at will, it's probably factual. It is said that a Roman soldier, if there were four of them, they could stand back to back with their brothers in arms, put their shields down to the floor, cover almost all of, their, all of themselves, and each man protecting the back of the other, four soldiers were to be expected to hold off a much larger squad or company of other soldiers. That was their reputation. The men that are coming for Jesus are invested with religious authority and military might. Then Jesus knowing all that would happen to him. This is the beauty of John's gospel. John alone gives you these kinds of insights. He, of course, is being told by the Holy Spirit what to write down, but I'm sure John is also using, or the Spirit is using, John's personal knowledge of Jesus. John gives you psychological insight as this is unfolding, as at least dozens of men with lanterns, torches, and weapons approach Jesus in the dark of that olive garden, Jesus, John says, knows all that is going to happen to him, and look what he does. He came forward, and he said to them, whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And it's not much of a saying. Jesus is a common name. It's a name that you can find actually in the Old Testament under the name of the book Joshua. It's just a reference to the fact that God saves. Jewish families in this time living under Roman oppression were incentivized to name their sons Jesus as a hopeful statement that ultimately they believed God would somehow rescue them from these Roman pigs who kept their boot on Jewish necks every single day. It's an important name. It's a biblical name, but it's also a, a common name. It's an expression only of hope, just as in much of Latin America, and I had so many friends named Jesus, nicknamed Chuy. That's just an expression of faith looking back at Jesus. For first century Jews, it was a cry of hope that someone will come, that this is some sort of savior perhaps, but surely it can't be the one from Nazareth because Nazareth is a no-account town. 
According to an estimate I read a long time ago, Nazareth, ancient Nazareth, may not have been much larger than our church campus. It was a tough place to grow up, and absolutely no one was impressed if you told them you were from Nazareth. It was a workmanlike place where Jesus grew up doing a workmanlike trade next to his protector, his adoptive father, Joseph. But these men, at least the soldiers, unknowing and uncaring of all the expectations that have grown up around Jesus, receive this answer. From, get this question from Jesus, whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and, what's it say? They fell to the ground. Now, why is that? If there are certainly dozens, and the soldiers had the kind of prowess that I'm describing, why does a company of that size suddenly fall down when Jesus speaks to them? It's unimaginable that professional soldiers who had been garrisoned probably in very large numbers in Jerusalem to keep peace during the Jewish Passover because it was just the sort of time where somebody's religious fervor would overflow and a revolutionary speech would be made and blood would be spilled when people should be observing religious, religious days. You can visit that fortress too. It's the Antonia Fortress place where Roman soldiers would have been garrisoned, overlooking the heart of the temple property. They have come now. This is the sort of thing they've trained for. This is the kind of warning they've been given. There might be some kind of insurrection, so you men be ready to crush it. Don't make it worse, but don't let the populace think they can get away with anything. Surely these Roman soldiers find themselves very surprised to be following religious Jews into somebody's private property, into an olive garden to arrest someone that they're told is some kind of religious teacher. They ask after him, who do you want? Who are you here for? Jesus says, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. We're looking for a common name from a no-account town. And when he speaks it, they all fall over. Why? The translators probably cared enough to give you a footnote in your Bible if you look very carefully. It's very doubtful that Jesus spoke Greek at this moment. But John wrote the story in Greek, and he reports in John chapter 18, verse 5, that Jesus' answer is, I am he. It's a good English translation. If you had a, trans, if you had a Greek New Testament, or if you wanted a, one of the endless sites on the internet where you can have the Greek of the New Testament translated literally into English words, you'll find something shorter, more powerful, and more purposeful in John's writing. According to John, what Jesus said in John's writing was a little shorter, one word shorter. Jesus answered, I am. Why I am? Centuries and centuries earlier, in a much different time and with all kinds of different trouble, God sent a reluctant servant of his named Moses to confront the Roman Empire after 
every excuse that Moses could come up with. His last gasp effort to say, I can't do this, is to say to God, well, who do I say sent me? And God's answer simply is, I am. Not I will be, not I was, not I came into being, not I got started. No, I simply am. I just am. Something no human being can claim. We may be immortal, but we're not eternal. We all had beginnings. God exists in something you could call the eternal present. He just is. He is the uncaused first cause. He's the one who knows everything, does everything, controls everything. And Jesus has the audacity to pronounce in John's Greek writing the divine name of God and the effect it has on hateful people who are there on a mission is it literally knocks them over. This is not a small thing in the Gospel of John either. I won't take time to show you verse by verse all the times that Jesus made this claim. I'll just show you a couple, but Jesus has been saying, I am, all the way through the gospel. In John chapter 6, Jesus very famously fed 5,000 men at one time, counting women and children, at least 15,000 people. Then he put the disciples in a boat. They tried to go across the Sea of Galilee. Jesus stayed behind, and then... He went to the disciples who had been caught in a storm. Jesus in charge of everything. Facing a headwind, struggling mightily in the middle of the night. Do you remember what Jesus did? He walked across the water. One gospel, in fact, says that he would have passed by them. Just a little bit of humor from the gospel writers. The disciples are doing their best. Some of them professional fishermen who have lived and worked this little body of water their entire lives. Now they're exhausted and fighting to get home. And Jesus just walks across it all. Understandably, they scream in fear. If you're in the middle of the storm on the Pacific Ocean or Lake Erie, you're not looking for human figures walking towards you on their way past you. They scream in fear, and Jesus reassures them with a simple statement. Can you guess what it is? He said, I am. Jesus knows everything that's happening tonight. Judas doesn't know. Peter doesn't know. The, author the religious authorities don't know. The Roman soldiers don't know. But Jesus, verse 4, knows everything that is going to happen. And according to this little exchange, who do you want? Who are you after? I am. He not only knows, he's absolutely in charge. Look with me a little earlier in your gospel to John chapter 8. Let me show you a much more significant time that Jesus said, I am. John chapter 8. I'll read from verse 21. Jesus is speaking to religious authorities who despise him. He said to them again, I am going away. This is chapters earlier, much earlier in the ministry of Jesus, but the net is already tightening and Jesus is already hastening into it. I am going away and you will seek me. And you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says, where I am going, you cannot come? Can you hear the contempt? What can he do? We're in charge. 
We know better. We know the scriptures. We know how to interpret them. We know how to tell the population what the Bible means. Where's he possibly going that we cannot follow him? He must mean that he's going to kill himself. He said to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins unless you believe that. What's it say there? That I am. You will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge. But he who sent me is true and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. Look a little further down in, the John, in John chapter 8, verse 48. Jesus is the, believe it or not, it got much more intense from there. And in verse 48 it says, The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you were a Samaritan? A brutal ethnic slur in Jesus' day. And have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. That's the promise of Easter. That Jesus will die but rise again and give life to anyone he pleases. How did the crowd take it? Not very well. Look in verse 52. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. The Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, what's it say? I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Don't let anyone ever tell you, based on TikTok or whatever goofy thing is running through our culture at the moment, that Jesus never claimed to be God. He claimed to be God constantly. He cited scripture from the Hebrew Bible, from what you and I call the Old Testament, and said, I'm the point and the fulfillment. He did the very works of God, like give food to people in a much greater way than Moses ever gave manna to people in the desert. He took a kid's sack lunch and made it feed maybe 20,000 people. Then he walked on the thing that was terrifying his disciples and explained it to them with two words in the Greek New Testament. I am. I'm in charge. And in John chapter 18, Jesus knows everything that's going to happen to him, and he is in charge of everything that's going to happen to him. And we just read that he has the divine authority to escape death anytime he wants to. But tonight he doesn't want to. Back in John chapter 18, we've reached the pinnacle of the story. To me, the darkest moment of the story 
It doesn't seem dark until you think it through, but let me show it to you. John chapter 18, verse 6. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, if you seek me let these men go. Doesn't it seem like something is missing in the story? Doesn't it strike you as absurd if Jesus can knock a company of soldiers over by speaking that this would have been a moment to escape? Behold the glory of your Savior and the darkness of the human heart that men who were humbled by being knocked over by a word from the Son of God got back up and asked to kill him again. And this time, Jesus will not hide himself. He will not walk through a murderous crowd as he has so many times, as he once did of his own hometown in Nazareth. In Luke chapter 4, you can read about that. They tried to throw him off a cliff outside of Nazareth that you can still visit. They tried to give Jesus a blasphemer's death, but he walked through the crowd and escaped because it was not his time. He knew all that would come upon him, and much more importantly, he's in charge of everything that is coming upon him. And his only request on the night of his arrest is, let these men go. Why did he do that? Verse 9, this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Jesus has just prayed that with the confidence to his Father. They're all here. The only one who was lost is the one who was never saved, who was never with us in the beginning. The traitor is on his way to bring about the death of Jesus, not knowing that Jesus is in charge of everything. Now in our story comes Peter. The glory of Jesus is he continually gives himself up, showing his absolute knowledge and absolute control over everything and everyone he gave these men life. He rules over their lives. He knows the moment of his death. And yet, those evil men got back up and affected the arrest anyway. Then comes Peter, lovable Peter. Peter who will promise that he will be alone, the one who stands with Jesus, who compares himself with all the others and says, even if they betray you, I never will. I'll die with you. Well, Peter right here is both at his best and his worst. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So cut off his ear? Well, if you're a boxing fan, don't underestimate the head movement of a man named Malchus. Peter's tried to kill him, but Peter's not a killer. He's a fisherman. He's only ever wielded a, a blade to work. Now in a moment of desperation, Peter does something that I often do. I don't know about you. I try to steer the events controlled by the Son of God to make them more to my liking. Do you ever do that in your relationship with Jesus? You ever take over and try to jump in and do what Peter did and argue with him with words or actually take action? to get the story back on the track that you believe it should go. John doesn't tell us that Jesus goes on to heal the man. 
It's not his focus. He just wraps up the story, but with this. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So that, this is more language that is hard to understand. What's he talking about? It's a poetic and a prophetic reference. It's death. Jesus explains to Peter in language that Peter should have picked up from a passage in Isaiah. Where the wrath of God is spoken of as a bowl that people drink out of when God finally acts in justice. When God finally has enough of the evil in the world and steps in to correct all of it all at once. It's death. Put your sword away. This is a night for killing, but not for worthless men who have come to arrest the Son of God. This is a night actually to subject the Son of God who gave them life to the beginnings of a mockery of a trial and kill him on a Friday. And as he promised both his death and his own resurrection, that the Son would do everything the Father commanded and everything the Father had put in writing so that you could look back into it and read it in your own language and see that 700 years earlier the prophet Isaiah anticipated this moment, specifically the crucifixion of Jesus. I'd like you to see it with me in closing. Look with me in Isaiah 53. Jesus is telling us that it is the Father who is handing him the cup. And the Son will drink it down. He's going to accept death. He's not going to accept the defense of anyone. Not Peter. Not anyone else. He will make no moves from this point forward to defend himself. And Isaiah will tell you why. Isaiah 53. I'll just show you the first part of this monumental chapter. Understand what you're reading is written 700 years before the life of Jesus. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, speaking of the Messiah, that we know as Jesus, he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. And no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Here's why. Surely he, Jesus, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement or the punishment that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Here's why he did it. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's your Savior. Your Savior is one who steps forward. Jesus is the Savior who knows everything and controls everything, and with all that at his disposal, as part of the expression of his actual eternal nature, he steps forward into evil 
claiming that all the scriptures that were written a thousand years before him all pointed forward to him. He steps forward knowing everything and controlling everything to take the punishment that sin deserves so that you wouldn't have to. That's the good news. All kinds of religious movements all over the world and even some churches that call themselves Christians are calling people to work harder, try harder, do better. And in all of those efforts, you can see Peter flailing with a knife and doing nobody any good. That's who we are. Getting in God's way, telling him through our actions that we know better. And Jesus, in his grace and mercy and patience, correcting even that and saying to Peter, Peter, I have come to this night to die just as the scriptures promised. And then he steps forward to drink the cup for you, for me. He did it in our place. And you'll say, Bruce, I wasn't really maybe that familiar with this story, but I've heard this story. I know the gospel. I know that Jesus died for sinners. I know that Jesus died so that I could be forgiven. Yes, friend, but have you truly believed it? Has it changed the way you live? Has it reached the level of your emotions and your motives? Has it changed everything about you? Because you need to understand the reason this story and all the others are in the gospel is so that you would know how good this Savior really is. Because when you come up short, when you fall down again, when you sin and blow up your own conscience and knowingly defy God, I bet you're like me. I bet shame and guilt come rushing in and you think that certainly this time Jesus, as good and patient as he is, this time he'll be a little peeved. This time he'll be a little weary of me. And I need you to hear that Jesus is the Savior who steps forward because he not only forgives, he loves, he accepts, he calls you his own. On the night of his worst, he had the best in mind for the cowards around him. And he set them free as a small picture of what he would do for anyone who trusted him. You're not only forgiven, you're loved. You're also on your path, as Peter and John eventually did, of becoming very much like Jesus if you keep trusting him. And according to Jesus, in this same gospel, when he took life back in the resurrection, he came to these same disciples and told them this, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. The hard heads, the hard hearts, the people who were slow to believe, the people who argued him, with him at every turn, Peter who foolishly tried to murder a man to prevent the salvation of the world, People like that are forgiven. People like us are loved. People like us are accepted. And people like us are commissioned to tell this good news. So make sure, make absolutely sure, when you make the understandable, frail, but brutal human mistake of doubting the goodness of God in any of your circumstances, remember, this is your Savior the one who lives to take your place. Let's pray together. Christian, you know he forgives you. Do you really believe that he loves you perfectly all the time? That there's nothing you're going to do or can do that will weaken or diminish his love for you?
That's hard to believe because we don't know anybody else like that. He's the only one. How don't you thank him that he's like that? If you're weighed down, if you got to church all weighed down by guilt, if you're a little ashamed, why don't you rest in him? Thank him for being the way he actually is. And if you don't know Jesus, it might be strange to think that anybody would come to a church on a Sunday before Easter if they didn't already know him and believe him. But maybe you're not sure. And I'm asking you, are you entirely sure? You may be in ministry here. You may be the best person anybody in your life knows. But if you're not entirely sure that Jesus is your Savior, if you've never consciously turned away from your sin and put him in charge of your whole life, if you wonder if you have, if you doubt if you have, why don't you approach him on the basis of the goodness you see in this passage? Tell him you're sorry for your sin. Tell him you agree with him that you can't save yourself and put him in charge of your whole life. Yes, you will fail again, but he never will. He is your life. That's what Paul said in Colossians. Christ is our life. He just doesn't give it. He is our life. If you don't know him, I'm going to give you a moment to pray and call out to him. You don't need the right words, just the right disposition, just the right attitude to be humble-hearted and turn to him, take yourself off the throne and crown him instead. And you just call out to him with your own words. Tell him you're sorry for your sin. Tell him you agree with him that you have sinned and it has brought death upon you. Ask him to save you. Put him in charge. Ask him to give you the grace to follow him. Jesus said, if anyone comes to me, I will by no means cast him out. Jesus, if there's a person or any number of people here who are not sure of their relationship with you, I pray that they would be sure and make sure right now. They would call out to you and confess themselves, sinners, people who need to be forgiven, people who need to be loved and accepted by a holy God. And the rest, Lord, those of us who, who, to whom you have given life and we know it, help us to rest in it, to not feel guilt and shame, but to when, we, when those feelings and those thoughts, those doubts come, help us always to remember you in this moment and so many other glorious moments I could have mentioned. Remind us that the Christian life is not us. It's you, our Savior, Jesus Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name and Crosspoint says... Amen. Listen, if you have questions or doubts, or if, gloriously, today you believe you've taken a step of faith in Christ, you'll find your, in your bulletin a card. Fill that out for us. Check the box on the top. If you have questions or doubts, if you heard something that piqued your interest, but you're just not entirely sure about it,